Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. What's up, fellow skeptics? So last time we talked about heaven and what it'll be like. We talked briefly about it. We talked about how the Bible says that heaven is paradise, that heaven is the garden of Eden regained, that heaven is a place where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what Revelation 21 says. But whoa, 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 hit the brakes because heaven's paradise, right? But I I don't know about you, but I got some really, really good friends that don't believe in heaven or don't believe that Jesus is God. Maybe they believe in some sort of God or higher power. And I love my friends. I really do. I spend a ton of time with them. I text them every single day. So how is heaven going to be paradise? How will there be no tears in my eyes, in your eyes? If I know, as I'm sure you know and can relate, but if I know that my friends are not only not in heaven, but they're in torment, in hell, forever. Well, there's got to be an answer here. And just follow the logic, because if Revelation 21 says that God is going to wipe away every tear, that there's going to be no pain, no hurting, no suffering, all the former things have passed, number one, we got to know what the rest of the book of Revelation says. And once we do that, we find out that just two chapters prior in Revelation 19, the apostle John, who is getting the vision, sees at the end of time after God has judged the world. And let me paint the picture for you. God judging the world is him casting Satan, the demons, and those who reject Christ into the lake of fire. And we'll talk about what that is in a few episodes because I do have another mini-series on hell that I want to do after heaven. But suffice it to say, the judgment happens. Satan, the demons, get cast in the lake of fire for the rest of eternity. Woohoo, that's great, but so do our friends and family who haven't received Christ. And so that happens, and then John hears something. He says, It seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Why, God, why did you send all of our loved ones to hell? That's that's not what he hears, right? Crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, speaking of Babylon, which is uh, a metaphor in Revelation for the world's system and the world's idolatry or the world's hatred to God, the world's uh, quick turning to the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of money, power, pleasure, sex, who, verse 2, continues on, corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they cried out, hallelujah. And before we go any further, let me just point out that what John is seeing is a bunch of people who know something we don't know. And that's going to be an important kind of mindset to get in as we continue on with this episode. But they do, because Paul writes in the Bible that now on this earth, we see as though we see through a dim glass. But, Paul says, in that day, speaking of the day that we are in heaven in the presence of the Lord, he says, we shall see clearly. 
And it's true. If, if we think about heaven, it's the place where we're going to be in the very presence of the Lord, the presence that God said to Moses when Moses asked if he could see God's face, that Moses would surely die, that God could not so much as look at sin or sin would face judgment then and there. Moses would die in his sin for simply being in the presence of the Lord. And yet, the Bible's very clear that on the day that we're in heaven, we will be in the presence of the Lord. And so, and I understand that the last episode was very Bible-heavy, and and what does the Bible say, and what are the verses of the Bible, and some of you may have been missing some of the more philosophical or scientific content, and I hope to bring a little bit of that into this episode. But I do think that there are a couple truths we need to grasp about the statement I just made about those people saying that God's judgments are true and just, about them knowing something we don't know. And I think that that's the fact that in heaven we'll understand God's holiness better, we'll understand our sin better, the shock and awe of heaven will be realized and not just imagined. And if you're wondering what I mean by that, I'm going to refer you back to the part one of this series, which was the episode just before this one. And then let's talk a little bit about how our brains are wired and why we think the way we do, but I'm going to save that part for last in this episode. Because first and foremost, I think the most important point about heaven and understanding how we'll feel is we'll understand God's holiness better. You see, right now on this earth, we are sinners. And so it's easier for us to relate with sinners than it is for us to relate with God. The late theologian R.C. Sproul was actually asked this question a few years back. And if you want a much longer kind of drawn out uh, lecture on this, I encourage you to look it up. But he, he was asked the question of how will heaven be paradise if our loved ones are kept out? And at one point in the middle of his uh, lecture, he gave an example where he called up a few audience members and he had one of them represent Jesus, one represent Hitler, and one represent the Apostle Paul. And he had Jesus and Hitler, or at least the people representing them, stand on opposite sides of the stage. And then he asked the crowd, the Apostle Paul is probably the most godly person in the Bible other than Jesus, in his opinion. And he said, where would the Apostle Paul land on this stage? Would he land right in the middle? Would he land closer to Jesus? Would he land next to Hitler? And at the end of the example, he ended up placing the person representing the Apostle Paul next to the person representing Hitler. And he said, you see, once Paul died and the justification of what Jesus did on the cross was applied to Paul's soul as he entered into the glory of his Lord known as heaven, Paul was able to stand with Jesus. But until then, until Paul was what the Bible calls glorified, the distance between Paul and Jesus made the distance between Paul and Hitler look almost invisible. It it made the distance look almost negligible. And I really liked the point he drove home in that example. You see, I think too often we think of God's holiness as just simply being kind of good. But in the Bible, God's holiness is described as fire. God's holiness is terrifying when people like John in Revelation or like Isaiah get a vision of heaven. They fall flat on their face as though they were dead. It's so terrifying, so fiery, so magnificent, and that's because it's so pure. And we can't relate with that because we're so unpure. And I think that's another thing that we'll understand better in heaven is I think we'll understand our sin better. Now, theologically and philosophically, we can understand the notion of sin, the doctrine of sin, the teaching of sin. 
I can give you a proper theological answer, and you can probably give me a proper theological answer, that sin is just imperfection, right? The word sin as we use it today comes from an archery term, meaning to miss the mark, right? Because any action missing the mark of perfection then is sin, right? And any word that leaves our lips that is not intended for the love of God or the love of others is sin. Any prideful, any selfish thought, any lustful thought, any devious thought is sin. And if you've been to an evangelical church or studied the Bible long, you know that. But I don't think we fully understand it. And I don't think we will until we get to heaven. I don't think we understand how truly opposite and against God sin really is. Which then leads me to my next point, and that's that I think we'll be more surprised that we're in heaven than we will be that someone we know isn't. And let me kind of say that in a better way. But I think the greater shock of heaven isn't going to be who isn't there. The greater shock is going to be that we're there at all. Because if we're going to understand God's holiness better, and we're going to understand our sin better, then again, like every person in the Bible who sees the holiness of God, we're going to say, woe is me, I am undone, I am a sinner, I am a person of unclean lips, I come from a people of unclean lips. The first shock and awe of heaven is going to be that we get to be there. Let alone, as we talked about last time, the splendor, the majesty, the breathtaking wonder of the glory of God. But none of that takes away from the fact that we will all know, love, and care about someone who is not there. And at some point, we got to notice that, right? So then there's really, I guess, two ways to think about that here on earth. I suppose the first way is to question God and to question the goodness of God. To ask God, how could you not let my friend into heaven? I love my friend. They're a really great person. They don't do very many bad things. And what are we really asking in that question? Well, I think, and I think without realizing it, so give yourself some grace if that has been your tendency. I know I've had that tendency as well, but give yourself some grace because I think without realizing it though, we're asking God to detract from his holiness. Or we're assuming we understand God's holiness or our sin better than God himself does. And let me explain what I mean by that. You see, in the verses I just mentioned, in Revelation chapter 19, at the end of the age, the saints are in a multitude in heaven crying out, His judgments are true and just. And so then to say otherwise, we must think to some degree or another that his judgments are not true and are unfair. But again, as I said, give yourself some grace here, because I, I don't think this is an intentional thing that we're doing, though it is a thing. And I'll prescribe the remedy for it here in a second. But I think the other way we can look at this when we ask this question is, are we asking, are our loved ones not there really from a place of compassion, really from a, I love them so much, and I just, I want them to be with God. I don't want them to suffer for all of eternity. I don't want them to be in torment, which as a side, torment, torture, two different things. We'll get there in a couple episodes when we talk about hell. And unfortunately, the Bible has an answer for that too. You see, in Luke 14, Jesus said, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And that's a tough verse because then we get to 1 John 4.20 and John writes, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So what's going on here? Well, we have to remember the Bible was written primarily by Jewish people 
to primarily a Jewish audience, though some Gentiles did author and some Gentiles were the intended audience as well. There's a parallelism that goes on in Jewish literature, and we've discussed it before and we'll discuss it again in future episodes, and I don't feel the need to get into it now, but suffice it to say that in the Old Testament, it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau, which sounds like a contradiction because you're like, wait, God can't hate. God is love. The Bible literally says God is love. But the Bible's using a form of Hebrew parallelism, which compares love that is so strong that the next best feeling of love is so small that it's compared more to hate than to love. And so number one, this goes back to the last episode where I talked about if you really want heaven, you're going to really, really want Jesus. You're going to really, really want a relationship with him. And this is a tough truth that we need to get across. Listen, this is a tough truth I need to get across. So I'm with you on this, but we need to love God so much that we can honestly say not only if the rest of the world burns and all I have is Jesus, I'm content. But so that we can say, if I were to lose every single other person in my life, and the only person I have left is Jesus, then I'm content. And that's tough. And I feel like, and I haven't experienced this, and I pray I never do, but I feel like only if you're a Christian who's been persecuted do you really understand what that means. Perhaps that's why the Bible says the persecuted are so blessed. But it's a very real truth that every Christian, whether persecuted or not, if they want to follow Jesus, has to come to a place that they can say, if everyone I know and love were to go away forever and all I had was Jesus, I'd be okay. Because the truth is you would. The truth is I would. The truth is there is an end coming in which everything will be made new. And I don't quite know how our brains will work in that day. I don't know if they'll be vastly different from how they are now. I know that whatever gives us the tendency and temptation to sin will be gone forever. I don't know if whatever gives us the tendency to be sad will be gone forever. And I've done a little bit of studying on how the brain works in grief and in joy leading up to this episode, because I really felt like it was important. And I looked specifically at studies and at MRIs that were done to people going through grief, going through the loss of a spouse or a very close family member. And it should come as no surprise to some of you that know a little bit about how the brain works, about psychology or medicine, that in grief, the pituitary gland produces adrenocorticotrophin, which is a hormone that increases the production and release of cortisol in the adrenal gland, and that it's that cortisol caused by the adrenal gland that makes the lower part of our brain more active than the upper part of our brain, and in the lower part of our brain is the amygdala and the hippocampus, which regulate mood and memories. Simultaneously, it lowers the cortisol levels in the upper part of our brain, which I'll get to here in a second, and save for all the nuances, part of what that does is it makes us really sad, and it makes us remember a lot of things that in turn make us more sad. And that's one of the reasons why nostalgia is so powerful and such a huge marketing technique for people, is because when we're feeling sad, when our hippocampus is full of all this cortisol, we tend to experience nostalgia, which is a way of remembering the past, but kind of dusting off the ugly parts, right? Nostalgia always does that. It's, it's us remembering things that happened, but through rose-colored glasses. And I think that's what makes it so hard here on Earth, before we get to heaven, before we can say truly, before we can see truly that God's judgments are true and just, is that when we think about people we love going to hell, it makes us sad. 
and it makes us remember how good they are, or at least how good we perceive them to be. Especially, again, if we take R.C. Sproul's metaphor, if our perception now is closer to Hitler's than Jesus's, and we experience a grief of knowing that someone we love and care about is not going to be in heaven, but instead going to be in hell, and that raises our cortisol levels, and we're sad, but we remember how good they are, know that that view is tainted. Know that that view is not pure. Know that God knows who they are with x-ray glasses, not rose-colored glasses. That he sees every sin in their life, just like he sees every sin in your life. That because of God's holiness, just like you, they don't deserve to be in heaven either. But don't let that stress you out too much. Because I also, in preparation for this podcast episode, looked up how falling in love affects our brain. And that might sound a little weird, but if you remember last time, I talked about how our relationship with God, the only thing that ever comes close to it is marriage. And, well, typically in marriage, (laughs) at least as marriage should be, two people are in love. And they fall in love. And when they fall in love, that upper part of the brain that gets less cortisol when you're sad, well, when you fall in love, it gets a rush, a flood of dopamine and actually some cortisol to balance out the dopamine so you don't go crazy. And then there's a third chemical called serotonin that comes in and affects our mood, affects our behavior. It's the main driver behind the reason why when you fall in love, you have obsessive thoughts. You have an inability to function as normally as you did before. And some researchers say this actually takes about two years for your brain to level back out once you've fallen in love. And so again, I don't know how our brains are going to function in heaven. I don't know what the chemical reactions will be taking place in our brains at that time. But I do know the Bible's clear that the joy of seeing Jesus, the joy of entering into his presence, will completely blow the joy of falling in love out of the water. It won't even come close. It won't even compare. And I really doubt if our brains still work similarly in heaven as they do on earth, I doubt they'll level back out in two years. I have a feeling the dopamine, the serotonin levels within our brain will be spiking for centuries. My main point in all of this is that it's logically and scientifically probable that the joy of heaven will overcome and overpower the pain of nostalgia and loss from earth. And so at this point, you're probably thinking, well, that's still not that much comfort. I know, but you're not in heaven yet. And I don't think you're going to find comfort knowing these facts here on earth about heaven until you're in heaven. But I also know that the Bible says that one day Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. Yet this is the same Jesus that when he was on earth, went around weeping. He weeped for Lazarus, he weeped for a city, he weeped for a people, he weeped for the people killing him on the cross. He weeped so much that in that famous part of the Bible where Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And, you know, Peter said, you're you're the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon that I will build my rock, my church. One of the disciples said, well, people think you're Jeremiah. You're the resurrected or the reincarnated Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet, right? Jeremiah had such a broken heart for Israel, and he literally wrote a book called Crying. It's called Lamentations, right? The dude just cried all the time. And apparently Jesus cried all the time too. And so people are like, hey, is this Jeremiah, the guy that cried all the time? And relationally speaking, that's part of what it means to have a heavenly mindset, right? There's the old saying, and you've probably heard preachers say this before, right? But it's that, oh, Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. To which a you know typical preacher is like, no, you need to be heavenly minded. You'll be more earthly good. But really, a heavenly minded Christian is someone filled 
with the joy. Someone who gets a dopamine and serotonin rush just by opening the Bible, just by praying to God. And if you're missing the serotonin or dopamine rush in one of those things, it's probably because you're not doing the other one as much. And yet, at the very same time, the minute the Bible closes, the minute the word amen is said in the prayer, walks back into the world with a broken and shattered heart. And I encourage you to have that. Because my friend that I love very, very much thinks he can be his own God, is okay living and dying in his sin, and that breaks my heart. And so I want to love on him and spend as much time as I can and respond to those text messages and have deep conversations and take them out for food. And if you have a friend that doesn't know Jesus, I encourage you to do the same. I think when we consider being in heaven without our friends and family, if instead of asking why God, we asked God to show us his heart towards them, we would weep more over them. Because the Bible's also clear that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance and eternal life. And one day, the heart of God will be to judge that person, truly and justly. But today, the heart of God is to see that person come to know him, repent, turn of their sin, experience the joy of knowing Jesus. Heaven for now is a half-broken heart and a half-full heart. Heaven in the final day will be the broken heart healed, finally having illumination and reason to why God's judgments are true and just. And don't for a second believe anybody that says, We'll just forget our relationships. I, You know, I actually found that. And I know I'm probably a little over on time at this point, but I actually found that in my research. I found a YouTube video. Someone was saying, in heaven, we'll just forget the relationships with the people that aren't there. That is so not biblical. You want to grind my gears? That grinds my gears. Because heaven is the place where we see fully. Heaven is the place where logic and reason are illuminated and crystal freaking clear. Not where we forget things. I... How, it fathoms me that someone can think that a mother in heaven whose child is not there would forget the child for the rest of eternity. That is not God. That is not in the Bible. Heaven is a place of clarity. Heaven is a place of remembrance. Heaven is a place of logic, of reason, of healing, of hope. And, I, you know, I'm sorry. This is two episodes in a row where I've hopped on a soapbox. So I do apologize. I still have more to say on heaven. So we're probably going to talk about that. Anyway, I'm over on time. I'd love to continue this discussion with you more. Don't forget, I have one social media page. I'm largely against Facebook and Twitter, really just any social media, but I do have an Instagram. It's just at the Christian Skeptic. So if you want to connect with me on social media, follow me there. The new website is also up. It's thechristianskeptic.podbean.com, where you can see all the old episodes. I'll be uploading some additional content there. I might have some blog stuff going on. There's a donate button if you want to support the show. And as always, you can reach out to me through email, christianskepticshow at gmail.com. But truly, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show. 